and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm here with the usual crew. I am Natasha. Natasha, hello. I hear you're a gaming fanatic. I really am. It's everything I hoped for in my mid-20s. Exactly. And Danny, I hear you actually used to write games in basic and assembly back in the day. I did. I actually had an amazing RPG I built on a TI-86 graphing calculator during calculus class um, that allowed you to, it actually, you, you could explore a city, a, a small <laughs> village. There, there was two NPCs and they only had three responses and they all had led to the same response. It wasn't a particularly good game. And those two NPCs were Danny's first two friends. Now, today, today, as you can tell by my relatively hacky intro, we are talking about the world of gaming. And we're talking about the world of gaming from two main perspectives, one of which is from the big tech angle, platforms, ecosystems, take rates, and all that good stuff. And actually how Amazon made a game people like. Who would have thought? I'm from the other perspective, all about startups, startups that are working to build games, both from complex all the way down to the very, very simple. It's an interesting world at a fun time. But Natasha, to give us some framing for why this matters now, talk to us a little bit about numbers. Yeah. So if you're like me and you don't pay attention to gaming often, know that it is massive and it's making a lot of money. So we're late and I'll help you catch up. So New Zoo 2021 data says that global gaming consumer spend will total 175.8 billion this year. And then to give you context on why that's a big deal, we, we got another report that said that industry global revenue from video games is expected to almost double to 198 billion in 2024 compared to 2016. So it's not just getting bigger, it's getting bigger in comparison to the past. And to end, obviously, venture is starting to notice as well. Venture-backed companies in the gaming space have raised nearly $5.9 billion in funding so far this year, which surpassed how much they've raised in 2020 and 2019 and is approaching 2018 levels. Right. So rising venture capital sums, enormous global spend, bunch of that going through the mobile world. Danny, this is leading to uh, people from all over the tech world to pay a little bit of attention. So tell us about the investing firm that we can all name and what they're up to. That's right. So we're talking about the AAA, which is also the name of the high quality games and also the three players that are re-dominating the video game landscape. So first up, we have Andreessen Horowitz, which I got to be honest, uh, you know, they've become an asset manager. That's what they yes. want to do. They want to raise AUM. And so they theoretically have a new gaming fund, which doesn't have anyone to run it. <laughs> and it must be an amazing place to be that you can just raise capital for theses and initiatives without having any team or any person to run it. But what we've heard from, from Protocol and some others that they're raising a, a dedicated gaming fund that's in line with some of the other uh, folks in the industry, firms like Convoy Ventures, that's Convoy with a K, which invests in video game middleware. Um, and basically it comes from Andreessen's investment in Roblox, which turned them a nice little tide of money over the last couple of years. And just yesterday, Andreessen announced that they had invested in Axie Infinity, which is an NFT gaming marketplace at a $3 billion yeah. valuation. So it seems like either out of this fund or out of one of their many funds, funds. Yeah, they're, they're starting to actually spend in the category meaningfully. In addition to Andreessen, we have Amazon. So Amazon this week, or I guess last week, launched its New Worlds game. So for the last couple of years, Amazon Studios has been trying to produce a, a good game, any game, really anything that anyone wants to play, <laughs> has not done well. Crucible and a bunch of other titles have sort of flopped. Last week, New Worlds got a little bit of positive critical attention, although I was on Metacritic this morning, and let's just say that the People's Choice Award is not going to go to the game as of right now due to some login issues. Um, but it's a massively multiplayer online game into the fantasy space, and 
And it's a huge deal because Amazon a couple of years ago obviously bought Twitch. It's a huge player in the video game streaming space. And now it is trying to find a streaming game online to complement its other offerings. Yeah, and I'll just throw in here that it's so funny to me to watch Amazon bake Prime into things that I use because to me, Prime is that thing I check into at Whole Foods and that occasionally I use to like watch something for free on Amazon, you know, or maybe it's shipping, but I think that's kind of baked into e-commerce now. And they're like Prime rewards for New World's players. And I'm like, oh, shit. It's the same thing. I, I wonder what Prime's going to become and why it fits into gaming and groceries. But apparently Amazon knows something that I don't. Anyways, Danny, Apple, what's going on with them? Well, the third AAA is obviously Apple. And Apple is is one of these companies, no one thinks of as a gaming company, right? I, I've been a Mac user for 15, 16, 18 years. No one thinks of Mac as a video game platform. But let's be clear, the iPhone and the iPad most definitely are. Apple had operating profits from gaming of $8.5 billion from 2019. We learned that from, the, I believe, the Epic trial. And that's more than Xbox, Nintendo, Blizzard, and PlayStation combined. And most of that is driven from the fact that the App Store itself has an 80% operating margin, which has to be among the most um, insane amounts of money. That's maybe an argument for why 30% take rate is maybe perhaps a tad high, given that there's a monopoly and there's no competition. Um, But clearly, Apple has also tried to make Apple Arcade into a major video game streaming platform, competing with the Epic Store, Steam, Amazon Prime services, the list goes on. Who would have thought that out of nowhere, sort of Apple is becoming kind of the dominant player in the video game universe? Yeah, Alex, I know you spend so much of your time with video games. Like, how shocked were you when you saw the, <laughs> the Oh, that is why you only publish there. three times a day, Alex. <laughs> Alex, I hear you're an enormous dweeb. Now, please explain to me what's going on. Um, sorry, Hanash, I, I was too busy being insulted to hear your question. Can you throw that at me again? <laughs> No, you're totally fine. I, I feel like the common refrain I've been hearing ever since we first saw Apple's numbers and its amazing operating margin is that we've never thought of Apple as a gaming company. But yeah, I'm curious yeah, if yeah. you agree with that or if you if you knew all along. Well, I mean, look, when we started off the show, I made a joke about PCs and a little bit of a riff about PlayStations and other consoles. And those are the platforms where more serious gamers go to play more serious games, the AAA games that Danny is talking about. But what we have to keep in mind is like the average gamer, and I forget the actual statistic, but it's something like the average gamer is roughly like a 43-year-old woman on a smartphone because that's the biggest gaming category out there. And if you go back to the, the earlier data points, Natasha, I think 103 billion of the roughly 200 billion is expected by 2024 in gaming spend is going to be mobile. So half. And you think about who controls the mobile gaming space in the United States, it's two people, it's Google and it's Apple. And so to see Apple be this big of a player is only a surprise if you don't really know the demographics of the gaming world. It's it's like Candy Crush wasn't just a hit in the gaming world. It was a phenomenon in the population, right? And so games like that can really kind of go across demographic lines and show just how popular gaming is with everybody. Well, I think one of the things you learn as you go through more of tech is, is gaming ends up being the dominant use case for almost every platform. You know, back on when I was at Google Plus, gaming was an enormous priority precisely because it was going to add engagement. People are going to come back regularly. They're going to connect with friends. Um, You look over at app stores. How often do you buy a note-taking app? Maybe once every two years. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that shows that basically no one spends money on app stores that much anymore because they have the apps they want. Some folks might have a subscription to 1Password or some other kind of consumer SaaS services. Um, But for the most part, you're not buying hundreds of dollars worth of apps on a regular basis for your phone. That is not true in the gaming world where people not only buy the game itself, they're buying skins, they're buying hats, they're buying all kinds of uh, ephemera at very high prices with some will spending thousands of dollars per year. And so when you're looking at the future of these app stores, 
gaming becomes the key growth area where you say, look, that's where people spend their money. Yeah. Therefore, we got to serve those customers better. So what I'm hearing is there's a significant difference between a gamified app and an actual video game with all the bits and bobs. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think that like the app, people have learned how to gamify applications. So I've been doing that for a long time, but just straight up games are just such a big component of of the application world. So it's kind of like, you know, the old joke, like the internet's for porn. I think like the application world's for games and people just love them. And to Danny's point about people spending money, I mean, think about League of Legends, which is a free to play game. Uh, it's been popular around the world for, in gaming terms, 600 years. And they make money off of skins and other kind of in-game content. And I, I will I will admit, I don't play LOL anymore because I've moved to more complex games. But like, I have spent probably 50, 100 bucks on LOL skins in my life because it was fun. So nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I'm just one person. They have tens right. of millions of players. And so it does add up, you know, pretty quickly. Well, I do think what's interesting, and we've seen this transition obviously over the last decade, but it's only accelerating into the 2020s, is this move from the pay one-time fee for video games into this kind of streaming model. So, you know, if you go back to the rewind to the 90s or even the early 2000s, you bought a CD, you bought media, you bought it in a box, you went to a store, and those $50 games used to be split half-half to the publisher, $25 you know, dollars would go to them, and $25 would go to the retail store, the Best Buy, the Circuit Cities, uh, the Micro Centers, whatever the case may be. Office Max. Um, Office Max, uh, where the where the office deep. I don't remember the slogan. Um, but over time, <laughs> what people have learned is that you want users to come into the game and get hooked. You know, I think we first saw that a little bit with Zenga. We saw that with some of the Facebook-oriented apps, so Angry Birds and others. And as people went on, people realized, well, a recurring revenue source from folks who are willing to spend ten, twenty, fifty, hundred dollars a month is far more valuable than trying to sell a single box in a store one time. So when we're looking forward and you're looking at some of the companies that are getting into the gaming space, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, they're all approaching it from the streaming model, which is we want recurring revenues from customers to keep coming back to the store, to keep engaging, and to keep spending money. And just to explain this a little bit more, it's not like there's one way to make recurring money off of games. One example from, from my world lately is Paradox Games makes Crusader Kings and other kind of similar games. And they launch the base game. They charge you like 50 bucks for it. And then over the next three or five years, they just keep building large expansions that you pay 20, 30 bucks for. And I'm currently counting down until I can give them money for the Royal Core expansion to Crusader Kings 3. Paradox Games, please announce the release date. Everyone's dying. <laughs> Alex, I keep took the mic. Your, I keep reading your <laughs> damn dev diaries, which are so tasty. And yet there's no release date. Also... Paradox has taken its DLC strategy for mature games and converted them into a subscription system. So if you play Crusader Kings 2 and want to get access to all the DLC from over the years, you can just pay them five bucks a month, which I think is awesome. So we're seeing a number of ways to turn games from episodic incomes into recurring incomes. And I'll add one last bit that really interested me when I was doing research for the show, which is that we're seeing brands really look at games as potential marketing channels, as Facebook and Instagram, not to bring them up, become super crowded Fashion brands are advertising in League of Legends, apparently. Like Louis Vuitton yeah. apparently dressed up a cast of characters in old designs. And we obviously had Travis Scott show up in Fortnite as well. So this all, to me, makes me feel a lot like we're de-risking it for investors down the road, as long as we can prove that games are not these things that are popular for a month and then disappear forever. Well, and we really shouldn't be surprised that brands are targeting games, right? Because that's where younger players are. I mean, mm -hmm. it, all brands want to target younger users, those who don't have their preferences set. Um, that's one of the big debates on Capitol Hill right now on, on Instagram, is that a lot of advertisers are obviously targeting young children with the goal of trying to lock in um, those early preferences and take 
case of those users, the same thing is happening to to Fortnite. I mean, if you're looking to uh, attract the future Louis Vuitton customers in their 30s and 40s, you're actually looking to make them popular in your teens. You want them to aspire to have a career and to have the kinds of cash to be able to purchase these things down the line, of course, unless your parents are already buying it for you in your teens, in which case, F you. Yeah, yeah. And to summarize kind of where we're going with this, like as games have become more viable as a recurring business, they become a little bit more venture capital friendly, if you will. And that's probably why we're seeing more capital flow into startups that are working on this. And Danny, just for folks who haven't heard it's 18 times, tell me why traditionally venture capitalists didn't like to invest in gaming studios. Well, it was a very punctuated industry, right? So again, go back to the box model. You spent four or five years developing a game. You put all this money in. In recent times, that's tens of millions of dollars. The top AAA games a day cost $100 million. And then you plop your box on the shelf or on Steam and it kerplunks and you're at $100 million and you lost all of your cash. So venture capitals hate this model. It's why they weren't in content. That's why they never really engaged with Hollywood. Most media, including our media, including text news is, is the same way, right? We have a big investigation we spent six months doing, you know, that's worth a lot, but then you don't really know what how the public's going to react. So as the industry has migrated from that kind of punctuated one-time sales model to a recurring revenue model, it both feels like SaaS, it is SaaS, and people feel, I, I, you know, investors are feeling much more confident in investing in those sorts of companies, mostly because I would argue League of Legends, Fortnite, Roblox have shown that these companies do not have the same level of fashion trend sense. You know, it's not the sense that you only have a six month window to be successful and then the game is is dead. These are now recurring platforms where people are spending, you know, ample hours every week and they aren't going away. It feels like it's not as easy though to build a video game startup than it is a SaaS startup these days based on like the level of innovation you have waiting for you to take advantage of. Like mm. games still feel like a, an art to create, super complex. I mean, they have their own soundtracks. There's so much there that to me, it still feels like the early lift of building could be something that VCs are scared of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of technology out there, like Unity, gaming engines that lets you kind of like leverage existing tech to, to build games. But Natasha is right. I mean, just go back to my favorite game, Crusader Kings 3. In the latest dev diary that dropped today, they showed off how they approached music for the expansion, which involved hiring a symphony. You know, like, like that's not cheap to do. Right, and, casual. And, and that's kind of standard. <laughs> But I will say there are some companies out there that are taking the exact opposite approach that are building kind of like almost like disposable games. And one of those is uh, what's Kyle Russell's startup? Playbite? Is that what it's called? Yeah. I think it's called Playbite. Yeah. And he's trying to build what he calls the TikTok of games, which is, look, instead of having immersive graphics and amazing audio and storytelling and hiring a staff of writers, what if you made a really quick, easy little fun game and that was you know, the approach to it. And given how much we know casual gaming is huge, maybe that's the way forward. And so I I think we often get a little bit stuck in the gaming world of like $100 billion games, but not every film that comes out is the next Marvel, right? Sometimes there's smaller things. And I think given Steam and so forth, there is a market for those as well. And that could make the startup game different. I see why Netflix has gotten involved in this now. Uh, oh, Netflix, <laughs> can we talk about how that's not going to be good? No, I was going to emphasize, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the concern over the cost of games is, is actually reaching the, the highest level. So Sean Layden, who was uh, until recently the president of, of Sony's Games of Vision, described in an interview to Bloomberg last month that, quote, Game development seems to double in cost every platform, he said, uh, noting that his budgets for recent big PlayStation 4 titles each hit $100 million. And then, quote again, if we can't stop the cost curve from going up, all we can do is try to de-risk it. That puts you at a place where you're incentivized toward sequels, and he predicted that PS5 games will be about $200 million each to produce. 
I actually think that this is one way to get around this, right? Is in gaming, it's oftentimes about the mechanic. You can actually reuse a lot of those mechanics from game to game. And a lot of it can come down to actually fairly simplistic aesthetics. Uh, I, I actually see a little bit more of a revolution. You've seen this mostly with Roblox, maybe because it's with kids, but like Roblox doesn't have the best graphics. It's not an mm. incredible environment where every everything is pixel perfect. In fact, quite the opposite. They've chosen intentionally to create an aesthetic that opens the platform up for creators to be able to fit right in, even if they're not the best artists or the best producers. And I think we're going to see more of those sorts of models going into the 2020s. You know, Sony could uh, solve some of those problems by opening up their platform and being more interoperable with other systems, but they're not going to do that because they don't want to. And so they have to have smash hit titles to drive consumer interest in buying the next generation consoles. And so, yes, the costs are going up, but if you hoist yourself on your own petard, you don't get to complain about, you know, having a steak chef through you. It's your own damn fault. So I don't have any pity for that whatsoever. Um, also, indie games have shown that you can make incredible games with limited budgets. Yeah. I mean, like just think about games, well, I mean, I'm not going to go through a list of things that I like. That's boring. But like, there is a way to do this. With <laughs> Stardew our, Valley and, apparently was a Kickstarter. Well, there you go. If Stardew Valley is a good one. That that yeah. that's. And I feel I, like I was going to throw out Hades. That's the uh, dungeon crawler, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Stardew Valley, by the way, if you don't know what Stardew Valley is, you can emulate this in your own home. Go plant a garden and then beat yourself with a rake and then go into debt and then owe someone like seashells and mushrooms. That's Stardew Valley. I do not understand that game. It's like like, like farm simulator, but worse. For those of us who don't live in Rhode Island, we don't have yards, okay? This is all we have. I mean, they don't really have land in Rhode Island either. Have you seen the size of the state? But nonetheless, another Rhode Island joke. We grew a cucumber this year in the backyard. (laughs) We only grew one, but right. it was a lovely cucumber, and then we forgot to p- pick it, and then it went bad. That's why I don't play Stardew Valley. You <laughs> well, you need to pay your mushrooms. Look, look I, I do think the high cost of games has led to a lot of IP turnover. So, I mean, one of the interesting yes. things when you get to Netflix and some others is you can imagine them taking some of their large franchises. So take Squid Game. You can imagine that turning into a, a sort of death arena uh, match game, much in the model of the TV show. It's actually such a direct translation. In some ways, it's almost the opposite direction, right? You can actually imagine it going from Fortnite to squid game i actually think uh you could imagine like the crown turning into uh an exciting role-playing game as as queen elizabeth or something i I don't know (laughs) all i can say is a lot of these folks have great ip and if you look at some of the best games in sony obviously spider-man is is the marquee title of both playstation 4 and playstation 5 that is a sony ip property they own the movies they do the tv shows they do the game itself i think you will continue to see that but I do think over the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot more IP built in the independent studios. There is a better flow of it. And that leads to one of the big questions, Alex, around the epic Apple trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The question is, you know, can Apple hold on to a 30% cut of all transactions that flow through its app store? If it can, it does make the economics a little bit worse for independent studios. The more money they can keep, the more they can de-risk their own investments, make better games and so forth. But we talked earlier about spending lots of time in games and we know that people find a franchise they love Minecraft or Fortnite, whatever, and really invest in it. And that to me is the precursor to the metaverse. So let's play a fun game. This is my favorite game to play. Who here can define what metaverse means without bursting into laughter? I will do it. A 3d virtual world where you can work, play and party. So it's like college. <laughs> 3D <online>. virtual. <laughs> yes, 3D exactly. 3D virtual online college. Zoom University is the metaverse, depending on who you ask. 
Okay, so so it's not just a game then. The metaverse is more of like a, like a like a digital. It's second life, but metaverse life is what you're saying. Yeah, Danny, you had an interesting point on like how it's different than NFTs, and I feel like it actually could help illustrate the kind of culture a metaverse is betting on versus the culture of NFTs, which we talk about on this podcast all the time. Well, I mean, a metaverse fundamentally is a shared experience, right? The most granular, fundamental piece of a, of a metaverse is that people who otherwise aren't physically in the same room together. Um, have a shared experience using the internet, using online technologies. So I agree. Uh, Zoom University, if you're taking a classroom online, you never meet the students in person. Um, that is a metaverse. It's maybe not a great metaverse. It's maybe not a particularly sophisticated metaverse, but it is a fully virtual classroom in which you're not really interacting with folks in, in person. The point I was right. making about NFTs is that it's interesting. It's just as a metaverse is getting a bunch of uh, investment. And obviously Facebook is just saying the word metaverse over and over again to try to distract from everything going on wrong over in, in, in Facebook land. Um, we have this property focused NFT trend of, of things are not streamed, things are not shared. You own a single token and no one else can own that same thing. And so I actually think the two trends are actually remarkably both parallel, but completely divergent. You know, in one case, you're having all this experience and you're sharing. The other is about property and ownership. And I, I'm curious because, like, as we pointed out with Andreessen's investment in Axie Infinity, there are overlaps between the gaming and NFT worlds actually quite a bit. Um, yeah. Mostly, I think, because demographically, the folks who like gaming are also <laughs> very heavily into crypto and NFT. So there, there's quite a bit of um, consumer overlap. But I'm curious to see how that develops over the next couple of years. Yeah, no, I, I, I utterly hear you. I do see a way to kind of make those two lines intersect, though. And I think here's how you do it. So going back to League of Legends, the example that I brought up earlier, there's a character called Caitlyn, and she's uh, an ADC, an attack damage carry. She's ranged, and she plays in bot lane, and she's tremendous. She has the longest range, where she did back when I played, of any kind of base character. All right, cool. And you can buy skins for her, one when she's like a sheriff, and one when she's like a resistance fighter. And it's cool. You can dress up your character in different ways. Very, very generic, though. Like if you pay $5 for one of those skins, any 25,000 other players can have it because it's just a couple bucks. If you NFT'd them, like we've seen sets of NFTs, like, you know, Bored Ape, Yacht Morons or whatever, oh. then you can see how I could have this individual Caitlyn skin that no one else can have. And if it's particularly cool, then not only will I be able to kick maximum ass with Caitlyn because she's amazing, but because I'll also be unique inside of the, the larger universe. And that to me is where there could be a crossover. If there's demand for that, I don't know, but I'm, I'm a nerd, so I'm in. Well, I will say um, Eric Peckham, who was our former media columnist, did a huge deep dive into the metaverse, I want to say a year ago on, on then Extra yeah. Crunch, now TechCrunch Plus. Um, but one of the things I learned about the economics, and he did the most work on economics of, of the metaverse, is there's a huge money laundering issue. Actually, there's an immense amount of money laundering that goes through in-game currencies because they tend to have the least KYC laws, know your customer laws, applied to them. And so NFTs become an interesting mechanism to actually enforcing the, the notion of scarcity in virtual worlds. If I spend $1,000 for a, a Vorpal sword, um, how do I know that the company just automatically was like, everyone gets a Vorpal sword in because it's more fun for the game or whatever the case may be? And the answer is, well, NFTs can guarantee that the company or the publisher or whoever the case may be just can't nerf any of your tools or any of the things that you purchased over time. It actually creates real value and scarcity in those economies. So up until this point, we've talked a lot about the opportunity and crossover potential for gaming in all worlds that we talk about. But how how are both of you kind of explaining Google's step away from gaming that happened recently? 
So Stadia, Google's streaming gaming platform, was originally going to be this big thing. And then in kind of classic Google format, it's slowly shrank over time. What Stadia is, is a way to play games instantly, running off their servers, kind of stream to you. And Google was going to make games for this. And then they decided to not do that. And I think, Natasha, that to me is more of a commentary on big tech companies not being good at creative art versus them not being a fit. But I wonder if you're saying that they're big tech will form the platform base, if you will, and startups will kind of make the games and the IP that sits on top of those. I don't, I don't know, Danny, does that kind of match your view? I think Stadia was an extremely ambitious project, right? Which was, we're going to get rid of the console, get rid of the graphics card. All we're going to do is you're going to have, you're going to play in the cloud, right? And, and we haven't actually talked about cloud gaming at all. But the idea here was like, you're not going to process all this graphics and, and this AI on your home computer. We're just going to do that all in the server and just download the screen you're seeing straight to your computer. There's a couple of problems with that. Obviously, high bandwidth. Um, latency is still really significant in a, in a video game. Um, anytime you're over 30, 40 milliseconds of, of response time, it's going to make the Oof. game choppy and it's going to be pretty terrible. And Stadia, from what I could tell, just never got all those factors right. There's a huge question of whether 5G and then 6G technology, whether 6G summon just a couple of weeks, it's coming in 15 years, but people are starting <laughs> to think about it. Um, Lo- yeah, we, love that. We barely have 5G, uh, but we've got to be thinking next <laughs> I don't G. have 5G. I don't think I've ever actually used it. What's 6G? Bring on Yes, wait. yes. So, so I do think there's a lot of work around actually the telecommunications protocols, and that's really where the cloud gaming world ended up. Is I, I think Stadia was way ahead of its time. It's classic Google going on right there. My guess is they're actually going to learn a lot, um, similar to how Google has DeepMind under its belt, which just turned a profit this year for the first time, according to the Financial Times, um, after what, what, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 years? I don't even know. It's been a really long time for them. So I just think it's ahead of their time, but it was the right thinking because I do think cloud gaming will be completely normalized within the next 10 years. Yeah. And so just to kind of summarize the big tech side of this, like Facebook was a, a gaming platform when they launched kind of the Facebook app system back in the early Zynga days. Now we don't think about Facebook as much as a gaming company, aside from the VR world and now the metaverse world, they're kind of in that bucket. Apple, of course, runs the, the application store that generates tons of revenue for the gaming world. Amazon not only owns Twitch, which is streaming, it's also building its own games, finally had a hit. Netflix apparently is going to make a Squid Games game that I'm now suddenly kind of excited about. I think, I mean, if, if they don't, why wouldn't they? Is it kind that, of my thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I think Google uh, is doing whatever Google does. Microsoft owns Xbox and uh, has owned studios variously throughout. Some I forget what it currently has under its auspices. And uh, who am I forgetting? Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Microsoft Facebook. What's the Sal- fifth one? Salesforce. I mean, Salesforce Sa- no, is launching their twenty four seven. They're, they're <laughs> launching their twenty four seven Salesforce TV. It's only inevitable that you have the Benioff yeah. the game. That would be the best game ever. You would just walk around with large pockets of money and then just spill $100 bills all over the city of San Francisco. Can you build a 100? How do you build a 100-floor skyscraper in the most NIMBY city in America? They didn't build it. They just got the naming rights because they got a bunch of it. That's, yeah. Anyways, the point is... I'm excited about all this. Like, like just researching for this particular show was a lot of fun because it's so fun to see games, which were when I was a kiddo, this thing that only nerds like myself and a couple of my friends played really now seems to be entirely culturally normal. And that is leading to quite a lot of interesting work. And I would just say such depth in the storytelling capabilities of games themselves. Like I'm playing some really fun stuff right now. 
um, because I don't have kids yet. And eventually that'll stop. But for now, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm just in awe of the work that has gone into creating worlds and titles and stories and, and mysteries and adventures. And it's just such a blast. It's a great time to be a gamer. And uh, I, I hope it stays that way. So startups, if you're listening, we want to play your games, make some kick-ass ones. And if you're Apple, stop stealing all the money. This is Equity. We'll be back on Friday. Bye. Bye.